So tonight we're going to uh, look at chapter 12. The uh, chapter that has two main sections to it, the section dealing with uh, Devadatta, and then the section dealing with the uh, young girl. And both of these sections are serving similar purposes, which are kind of a reinforcement to previous chapter, chapter 11, but uh, also to, to a theme that's recurring throughout uh, the Lotus Sutra, at least up, up to this part. And that is this uh, teaching that the, uh, the Buddha nature is our true nature. So all beings have it. And it's, it's essential that we see it within ourselves. But equally important, once we've had that realization for ourselves, is to then recognize it in all other beings as well so that we don't all of a sudden have our realization and we're kind of elevated as a result. Uh, but our elevation, you might say, becomes the elevation of all beings. Everybody rises with us. And we can see that point made by Dogen on, on quite a few occasions in various ways. And it also is part of the, uh, the Zen depiction of the Buddha's great enlightenment, that, uh, that when he had his great enlightenment, all, he and all other beings, were enlightened. It wasn't just about one particular individual and the fruit of that individual's practice. Chapter 12, you know, from that standpoint then, since it's just reinforcing the teaching that we've heard already, we could say, well, this is just excess stuff. And in a sense, it is. But it's really important excess stuff. And I guess that's my mission tonight, is to show how that's the case. Because what this chapter is doing is presenting in the first case with Devadatta, uh, a hard case that we could still see as being a hard case today, even though it's not part of our culture. I mean, the people that we're uh, hearing 
the Lotus Sutra teaching, they all would have known the story of Devadana. That was out of the Theravadan tradition, the bad boy of Buddhism, the good boy that went bad, <laughs> kind of created uh, what I guess we could call the first big schism within Buddhism, or at least attempted to. He didn't gain too many uh, followers in that attempt, however. And ultimately, uh, after this very disruptive influence he had within the community, made several attempts, as the story goes, at uh, murdering Shakyamuni. So definitely kind of the poster child for Buddhist bad guy. And for us to make this real for ourselves, we hear a statement about the universality of Buddha nature. I, I am quite certain that everybody in this room has their own hard cases. It's, it's kind of hard to concede that teaching with reference to certain individuals. It's like as a general principle, okay, but maybe maybe this doesn't apply everywhere. I'll leave it to you to fill in the blanks <laughs> as to who might occupy such a position. But the exercise is really an important because we, we hear these teachings and we can kind of accept them intellectually. But this chapter is kind of pushing that and requiring us to really look deeply into that and what that teaching truly entails. That even a character as unsavory as Devadatta as Buddha nature. And of course, in the, uh, within the structure of the Lotus Sutra, that means, that entails, that he too will be a Buddha at some point down the road. Again, we can take that to our hard cases and imagine those people, that they are going to be the Buddha sometime <laughs> sometime because they have that kernel within them another way of seeing this expressing this understanding is that we are all on the bodhisattva path some of us adhere to that path maybe a little more than others. But everybody has that propensity within them. And on occasion, will find themselves actually living in accord with that path. So the potential is there. The seed is there.
So that's a key piece to this story about Devadatta. And I didn't want, there, there are detailed deep, uh, stories about uh, uh, the way he, kind of the character uh, traits that he had and the incidents in his life where he manifested those, you know, and uh, even depictions of his uh, attempted uh, murderings of the Buddha. Uh, Devadatta would, uh, would hire people to, to go out and do that. Uh, but none of those came, came to anything. And he would send a rather aggressive element, elephant charging after the Buddha. And uh, the Buddha, through his loving kindness and compassion to the elephant, actually, the elephant was, was no longer in attack mode. He was ready to transport the Buddha you know, wherever he wanted to. It's like they became pretty good good buddies. So all of the attempts came to nothing. Uh, the Buddha's enlightened way uh, was sufficient to to uh, to be able to to stop all of Devadatta's attempts. And yet the Buddha didn't respond in anger. So another important piece to this, another important teaching that comes out of this is this teaching of how do we respond to expressions of ill will. And that's certainly come down to us today in our time. And is generally seen as one of the uh, ways in which Buddhism contributes in a very positive way to social political discourse by encouraging mutual respect, nonviolence, because of the understanding that violence, anger, simply propagate more violence, more anger, until that cord ultimately gets cut. Otherwise, it's just a constant escalation of anger, creating violence, and then being reciprocated. So the, the Buddha Devadatta story is a powerful one in that way as well. Not just teaching uh, that all beings, even a Devadatta has Buddha nature, but how do we respond? And therefore, how can we kind of elicit that Buddha nature, even in those of, uh, of uh, uh, not so good intent. 
How can we draw that out of them? So that's a teaching very germane to our time. And another teaching kind of embedded within this story, which is really important for us, is the teaching that all things, whether we perceive them as being good or bad, favorable or unfavorable, all things, all experiences should be seen as means to enlightenment. Because they all are. They have that within them, that capacity. A very important lesson of this chapter. And the importance of responding in a nonviolent way, in a non-aggressive way, like the Buddha did with Devadana, is kind of expressed in the story of Devadana. Uh, in terms of uh, just he he fell ill and recognized he wasn't going he didn't have too much longer to live and he came to deeply regret his schism with the Buddha and attempted to make the trip back to where the Buddha was to make his amends with with the Buddha. But uh, karma being such as it is, causes and conditions, he ended up being swallowed up by the earth, as the story goes, before he could get back to the Buddha. So he, he met his end <laughs> without that, uh, that resolution between him and the Buddha. But you know, this... The story, the importance for us is the fact that he did have that uh, that regret at the end and was uh, attempting to act on it. Someone that, as the story went about him, seemed to be incorrigible, unredeemable that nobody really fits that bill. Everybody can be redeemed. Of course, this has resonance with with other spiritual traditions. Calls to mind uh, stories from Christianity with the uh, person, two other uh, people who were crucified along with Jesus. And that story. So it's a it's kind of a theme that uh, that comes up in our lives. It's kind of one of those universal themes. And this is where Buddhism uh, makes the attempt to to address that. And just a real 
brief personal side note about when I was investigating other Buddhist traditions. I still recall going to an introductory talk with Shambhala in their chapter here in Cleveland. And this was actually like the main theme of the speaker's presentation was this teaching about all beings having Buddha nature. And of course, those in attendance, I mean, they were determined to come up with the examples like Hitler. He couldn't have. Come on now. <laughs> but he was pretty, uh, uh, pr pretty uh, consistent. He uh, said, no, nah, even Hitler, even Charles Manson, you bring, bring, bring me the, your worst and <laughs> I'm not moving off of this position. And I think it's if we connect this with the teaching of skillful means, which we've encountered in earlier chapters, it is a skillful means to accomplishing exactly what the Buddha did with Devadatta, that ultimately he, he actually won him over even. So, I mean, the way, whether it will happen or not, don't know. But that doesn't matter. It's doing the right thing. It has, has the power to accomplish that. Because again, we're not into results. And this is true with, uh, with our work to save this planet, dealing with the environmental crisis. Yeah. And it helps to prevent feelings of deep despair from setting in. We simply do things because it's the right thing to do. That's our practice. We certainly hope that it's successful, but we're not doing it in order to get the result. We're doing it because this is the natural manifestation of our practice. Loving kindness, compassion for all beings, for this entire planet. But that is going to get tested more and more as we do, in fact, get closer to the brink with with uh, with the fate of, of the planet. Uh, one of the uh, one of the world views that I think it's reasonable to expect it's going to to uh, have quite an upsurge in coming years is what's termed anti-humanism. That you know, humans are, are the problem. And that anything we can do 
So don't procreate. <laughs> you don't want any more of them? And Margaret Atwood wrote a book, I think it was about 20 years ago, along these lines. And we're in much worse shape now than this way than we were 20 years ago. We're much closer to this sort of thing. But she wrote a book about somebody who, a scientist, one of these kind of fits the mold of the mad scientist who is going to uh, put an end to humanity for the sake of the planet, for love of the planet, anti-humanism. So this teaching of all beings are Buddha nature. This is why I bring this in. It's going to get tested, even intellectually. Now we can sit here and, and throw up, you know, well, certain politicians. <laughs> they probably figure prominently in our own personal lists. But we may find ourselves sooner rather than later reaching a point where it does kind of become, no, this species is actually uh, a cancer. So I wanted to get that injected in, in the context of this chapter to make it current for us in our time. Nearly two millennia after this was written. What is the shape of, of our species here in 2023? And if, if we do have the capability of awakening, sooner would be better. <laughs> There's a real sense of urgency to it now. You know, when we get into the next story about the young girl, one of the things that comes up there is the sudden gradual thing her attainment of Buddhahood it's like boom <laughs> and that that's rather exceptional within the Lotus Sutra this is a one-off deal here <laughs> I mean the even though everybody is basically assured of, of Buddha Buddhahood but it, it's not happening right away <laughs> right right exactly but your day is coming. So the gradual school was very much what was uh, what was informing the teaching of, of the Lotus Sutra, except for this young, I think she's what, eight year old, eight years old, this young girl who, and it's not as, as if she is just, you know, a typical eight-year-old girl playing with dolls and stuff. She's, as she's described by, I think it's uh, uh, Manjushri in the sutra, 
you know, she's already a bodhisattva. So it's not like, you know, I'm, I'm just taking your average eight-year-old and, and promoting them to, to Buddhahood. But still, you know, the fact that this happened instantaneously was pretty exceptional. Gender aside, that's that's a different issue, which is kind of, you know, we don't need to dwell on that too much because I don't think that's, <laughs> this story doesn't play well in our time. We can't relate to it other than as this, this reminder that this is in our past and by our, I mean, kind of globally. There were certainly societies that were matriarchal, but, uh, but for the most part, you know, uh, women were, were treated as, as uh, inferior beings. And that's the driver behind the depiction here. I mean, and as we know, anybody who has any familiarity with India and their traditions, you know, that's still very much an ongoing thing there. So this story to move from David Dada, which does have a universal trait to it, and we can relate to it today. But the young girl, that side of her story is kind of like, oh, we just kind of go, <laughs> let's skip ahead to the next chapter. <laughs> this is embarrassing, you know, and it is, it is. And I guess the thing about it is that it's so clearly contradictory to basic Buddhist teachings. Which is, is what the Lotus Sutra is conveying here, that all beings are Buddha nature. And yet they can't quite bring themselves, and I guess we can attribute this to skillful means, that because it's so deeply ingrained in the society, when this this text is is uh, being put out there, they felt that they couldn't actually uh, kind of be open and out there with the equality of all beings, but somehow still be able to, to convey the teaching that all beings have Buddha nature but to kind of assure the public through a story like this, this girl, try to have it both ways. That, that uh, from the standpoint that all beings have Buddha nature, that that's why the girl could become a Buddha. But yet they need to have her first quickly go through the the incarnation is a male and then qualify for for that final promotion to buddhahood so we sit back and get a good chuckle uh and go oh boy <laughs> this kind of mentality just is but it's it, 
it's it's out there and it has uh, uh, been part of Buddhism through through the ages and of course it's still part of other traditions as well I guess all the other major ones for that matter it just you know progress is being made certainly when Buddhism came to this country uh, that progress got fast-tracked because you know this this stuff was so out of whack you know when when uh, Buddhism really started to take off here which was in the 60s so you know women were not going to be subservient roles if if this tradition was going to flourish in in this country and they they haven't been since the earliest years i mean that first generation when the when the teachers that launched centers were people that came over from japan and they brought with them their kind of patriarchal mindset which was part of just kind of deeply ingrained so they weren't going to be passing the leadership of those centers on to women dharma heirs but once that next generation <laughs> did take over that was all she wrote <laughs> we were done <laughs> it was you know there i'm fairly certain there are more uh, within Zen that there are more female teachers than male teachers. You know, and of course, my first teacher was a female. So, you know, that's kind of yes, it's not the first incident in the text that's that's embarrassing but it's the first one that i'm devoting any attention to it's uh previous one i kind of figured you know i'm not going to go there but if it comes up in the discussion that's fine we'll air it out and it didn't so voila <laughs> but this one because it's it is actually and important it's important to address it because this is the best known story within buddhism to my knowledge that that's just so out there about how they mishandle the role of, of women but yet they were trying they were making the effort because she did become Buddha. She didn't have to wait calpas. All she had to do was pass through the body of a man. (laughs) 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 But with that, small little addition to the process voila she she beat out the likes of shariputra and ananda 
<laughs> Which left them really scratching their heads. <laughs> so, I think that's probably enough said by me on, on this chapter. I think I aired what I wanted to hear. Open this up. Steve, um, I wanted to, if you could talk a little bit about the, the relationship of these ancient texts to to our practice in, in the sense of I mean, the traditions that I came from before this was you had a sacred text and even if you thought it was wrong, if that's what it said, that's the truth. Right. And, and and to listen to you talking about, well, here's, here's the case where they got it wrong. There are other places and people and things where in um, yeah, that's the gospel phrase. Um, a recent case being the, the Southern Baptist Church that excommunicated uh, a number of really high-ranking pastors in the Southern Baptist uh, Convention because they were ordaining women to be pastors. And that was just, the Bible says they can't speak, so therefore you are a heretic. And, um, but, but yet, I, I guess I'm trying to, and I know there are other traditions outside of maybe Zen that, that are a little more revered to, to the sacred texts. And I, yeah. I, I'm not sure. It, because it, it's, it's, it's a different, yeah. a different uh, thing. I, I mean, I, I guess I, I just always kind of thought that these are just helpers along the way. And if they help you, great. If they don't, you know, great. Uh, but right. uh, maybe I'm, I'm just reading. Right. Well, and I think this is where, for Buddhism, the, the fact that we don't have any established doctrine, dogma, so when we talk about what's being conveyed by texts, and this, I mean, the, within the Lotus Sutra and their teaching of skillful means, it's this text here is really laying it out that all texts are skillful means. So, and by its very nature, that means they have to fit with the, the society that they're, they're uh, being practiced in. Otherwise, they're, they're no longer skillful means. Within this society, you have to adapt. So I think that's a big change, whereas if you have uh, doctrine and, and you receive things as being sacrosanct, that's the teaching. As opposed to just these are teachings that can help lead you to awaken. That's their purpose. They're not something sacred and holy of their own nature. They're tools to help guide you to awaken.
which is why they are seeing as they move through the centuries into different parts of the globe, they have to change. And they always have. And I think that's why. Because they weren't coming with these overarching truths. You know, our truths are things like impermanence, interdependence, suffering. And if anybody wants to question, debate those, that's fine. You know, it's not like some existential threat. Let's look at it. I'll, I'll look into that with you. What, what's your take? <laughs> We're just trying to, to bring people to see their true nature as being far greater than their own selfish set of desires and interests, to be able to go beyond that. And the way you do that, it's gonna change with time and place. Because our dukkha changes. No, our dukkha is nothing like the dukkha 2,000 years ago. <laughs> Might be way worse. <laughs> Despite all the, the comforts you have. Actually, because of all the comforts you have. <laughs> it's much more global. Yeah, yeah. It spreads faster than COVID. <laughs> so that's, I mean, that's my kind of sense of it. Why we don't dig in on these things and say, well, that was their view of the place of women. Oh, well. We can look at it, but well, that's 2,000 years ago. Couldn't we say, well, it was 2,000 years ago, they thought everybody booted Maybe we don't think that anymore. Well, exactly. And that's kind of where I was taking us with that uh, little spinoff dealing with anti-humanism. That's going to come into play, I think, uh, in coming years, because I do see that worldview, especially if we don't come to terms with uh, with the sixth of extinction. Uh, I think, yeah, there, I guess there are two, two, there are going to be two schools of thought. There's anti-humanism, and then there's transhumanism, where we, <laughs> that's where AI comes into the that's the school that uh, you know, Zuckerberg and Musk cast of others. Fix everything. Yeah, yeah. We will. We simply need to evolve into that state. It can't be left to the Homo sapiens anymore. So those. Those of us that are still you know, relishing the human realm, that will, you know, they'll look down on us. Oh, boy. 
They already look down on us. Well, so what I know, is I know. So we're well on that path. That's right. <laughs> met you as I got started here. Mm -hmm. One of the first books he recommended was Just Sitting, Shunru Suzuki's book. And and I read it and I really loved it. And and I haven't really looked back at it until recently. I just noticed it on uh, Android, I think it was, had a, had a podcast, somebody reading the book. So I started listening to it last week while I was working and looking around the house. And there was something about in the first chapter or two that I don't remember uh, reading about before, but Suzuki made a point of differentiating between saying having Buddha nature and being Buddha nature, and says all things have Buddha nature. So... Or, or, pardon me, all things are Buddha right, nature, right, right. rather than having Buddha nature. And I think that differentiation was one between dualistic and non-dualistic thinking. Yes. Yeah. Let's just clear the deck on that and right. get down to basics, non-dualistic yeah. approach, and say all things are yeah. Buddha nature. And that's who we are. Yes. Exactly. Yeah. And, and, he's, and he further said, all beings and everything are Buddha nature. Yes. And that's the better formulation of it. I'm only reverting to having Buddha nature in the context of the Lotus Sutra, mm-hmm. which is the way it's getting expressed at this point in time. Yeah. But Dogen really emphasized that, that piece. Uh, that, that all beings are Buddha nature. Because you're exactly right. If it's something you have, then it becomes a, a possession. And now it's something I need to attain. I need to have that. And I don't right now. So, so I need to acquire. So there are all these ways of kind of going straight. Whereas Zen is very much the whole point of this practice that we do is to awaken to, to our true nature, which is Buddha nature. So that's why Dogen uh, taught uh, studying the self. To study Zen is to study the self. And that's how we're going to discover our true nature, which is Buddha nature, and that's what it is to awaken. Ah. Yeah, they did twist my perspective on it a little bit. Yeah. Um, on how I how, how I look at that now. Thank you. I wanted to I wanted your spin on how that affects uh, looking at everything in the Lotus Sutra from that perspective, but you just clarified. Yeah. So, yeah. Thank you. It's a little bit of a rabbit hole about the eight-year-old. <laughs> <laughs> 
But when we were talking about thinking about an eight-year-old girl, girl, boy, it doesn't matter, in fact, in this case, because that the age is sort of perfect. You have some sense of self at that point, but it's not too hard to get out of it. The longer we go, the hard, the more we build that self in there and beat it into ourselves. Right. And if somebody is, you know, maybe an eight-year-old is better than doing this when you're 30 or 40. Oh, yeah. There is that. Or 50. Or 50. Yeah. <laughs> or um, but just, I, like I say, it's kind of a rabbit hole, but just, because of where I come from, which I just thought, yeah, this is kids at that age are very creative. They're very imaginative. They're very open with me. Yeah. Having just spent three days with my grandson who's that mm-hmm. age. Mm-hmm. Um, and and it'd be easier. Yeah. Yeah. Good point. And I do know it's a story. <laughs> <laughs> Ready to chant? I vow to myself and to each of you to commit myself daily to the healing healing of our world and the welfare of all beings to live on earth more lightly and less violently in the food, products, and energy I consume to draw strength and guidance from the living earth, the ancestors, the future generations, and my brothers and sisters of all species, to support others in our work for the world, and to ask for help when I need it, to pursue a daily practice that clarifies my mind, strengthens my heart, and supports me in observing these vows. Right. Hope to see most of you on uh, Saturday. See you Saturday. What? <laughs> I said, see you Saturday. Saturday, yeah. yeah. It's coming. This Saturday. Do we need RSVPs? Um, uh, you could just let me know right now. <laughs> oh, I, 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 don't, I don't know yet whether I'm going to. Okay, yeah, I mean, I think uh, we've got the Tenzo on here, Keith. We, we currently are expecting seven for... Oh, yeah. You told me seven, so I'm cooking for 14. There you go. <laughs> You're good. <laughs> so, 